Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Steidel, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, June 13th, 2021. No Meet the Press today because of the U.S. Open, so we'll be reviewing just four shows. And a lot of kind of like... Mid-status news. Yes, yeah, very preparatory sort of news, but an interesting discussion at the end as well, I think, or at least in the journalism section for me. Yeah, absolutely. I did want to note, I saw on Twitter today by Luke Russert that 13 years ago was the passing of Tim Russert, which is a wild realization. Tim Russert, of course, being one of the long, long time hosts of Meet the Press and was a big reason why I became obsessed with the Sunday morning shows for sure. Yeah, a, a true a true legend in his field and he died way too suddenly, way too early. Way so young. Yeah, way too young. So I just thought I'd we'd take a moment to appreciate all the good questions he gave the show and how much he transformed political journalism on TV. And taught us so much. Absolutely. In the process. So, Brendan, let's jump to the show. What did you look at today? So, I took a look at Fox News Sunday, and I took a look at This Week. This Week was hosted by Martha Raddatz. I think in terms of ratings, I think I would rate both of them pretty highly. I think they're both about fours. They're good shows. They're not very good. They're not bad. They're, they're good. They're overall good. That's that's kind of my rating. Oh, interesting. I think they did a pretty good job of covering the news of Biden on his first foreign trip. And there were some interesting discussions there. And that's kind of the main thing I'll be talking about related to the shows. <laughs> so it's really interesting. So I looked at State of the Union and Face the Nation. State of the Union was hosted by Dana Bash. And I thought both of them did a pretty good job as well. Also, especially in looking at Biden's first trip abroad as president. But my, my gut reaction was to give them a three for their decently okay shows. Well, I think the reason I lean towards fours is that... You're more generous. No, is that often... Well, yes, but oftentimes I find the panels on each of those shows sometimes... I guess I said oftentimes. Oftentimes I find those panels not very good or negative parts of the shows and this week i feel like the panels were comprised of people who had a lot of background to deliver meaningful commentary and they did deliver that commentary oh interesting okay yeah, yeah then that makes sense but let's move on to quality questionable now naomi what was of high quality this week to you it looks like you've got something here for quality i don't know what it is i'm just reading the word quality Yes. So I'm going back to uh, a true and true quality moment, quality interviewee with Dr. Scott Gottlieb on. Now who's, he's a doctor of 
He's a doctor. Who is this? <laughs> Doctor Gottlieb, of course, being Face the Nation's favorite guest, and the he former, really has become that. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And he's the former FDA commissioner and just the COVID whisperer more broadly on the shows. He said something. We haven't talked about COVID in a long time, mainly because finally. So many parts of the country are getting vaccinated. Well, we talked about the the origin of the virus. I think it was last week, but but it hasn't like consumed the podcast. The and way. not like the the goings on of the day to day COVID fight. Right. Exactly. So there hasn't been something that's like kind of really stood out to me as actionable information that I can use in a while. But I heard something today from Dr. Gottlieb that I thought was like, oh, this will like shape how I watch the news and it's specifically about the ongoing variants we've talked about the alpha variant the delta variant the world is still uh, struggling with covid should we expect over the next several months to talk about more variants based on the pattern we've seen so far Yeah, it's really unclear. There's a lot of people who think that this virus has mutated rapidly over a short period of time and reached what we would call new fitness level, but it's not going to continue to mutate at this rate. It's mutating about at the rate of influenza B right now. So it's mutating as quickly as influenza B. Remember, this virus has to thread a very careful needle. It's trying to change the spike protein, which is a protein on a surface that we develop our antibodies against in a way that our antibodies no longer recognize that protein. But that spike protein is also what the virus uses to attach to the lining of our respiratory tract. So it can't change it too much or else it no longer can latch on to our cells. So, it, cells. so it's trying to thread a very careful needle. It may be that the rate of mutation of this virus starts to slow down. The good news is that so far, none of these variants that we've seen defeat the vaccines. Some of them, for some of them, the vaccines are a little less effective, but the vaccines have maintained their effectiveness against all of these variants, including 617. So I'm, I don't think we're going to see a situation where we're going to wake up one day like we sometimes see with influenza, where all of a sudden our vaccine doesn't work. A lot, at least not in the foreseeable future. Wow. That is so very helpful. Yes. Yeah, like, yeah, we're going to see variants, but probably most of the changes that can happen in the vi- virus are happening right now and are not going to continue at the pace that they've been. I was well, like, wow. Well, and also just like physically, the virus, the part of it that needs to change for it to elude the abilities of our antibodies from these, this vaccine is the part that uh, makes it do what it does. So... Yeah, it was it was supremely helpful. So Dr. Gottlieb, again, putting like nuggets of helpful information in my brain. I appreciate it every time. Brendan, you have a questionable quality. I don't know. You didn't change the subhead. Oh, so I have a for me, it was a quality, but we can we can twist it to make it a questionable. (laughs) So. And twist the way we look at it, right? I'm not twisting my my opinion. Just here. have two qualities. That's fine. Okay. So here's what it is. On the panel of this week, there was a conversation briefly about a topic that we're not going to talk too much about, I believe, and that is Kamala Harris, Vice President Kamala Harris's visit to Guatemala and to Mexico. And in this discussion. One of the panelists, a panelist by the name of Mark Thiessen from the American Enterprise Institute, had this to say. And what he said, I felt, was something we might say if Harris happened to have said it on a Sunday show. Let's turn to Vice President Harris's turn on the international stage this week with her her visit to 
uh, Guatemala and to Mexico. And it was there was a lot of criticism of of the trip. Uh, this may have been the low point. Take a look. This whole thing about the border. We've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. I, and I haven't been to Europe. And I mean, I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. I'm not discounting the importance of the border. Mark, how fair is the criticism that Vice President Harris is getting, interestingly enough, from both the right and the left for her trip this week? Uh, very fair. I mean, first of all, how can you not be prepared for that question and have a good answer? I mean, that's the most obvious question that was going to be asked. So that's just communication and confidence. But look, it's been 82 days since President Biden assigned her to be in charge of dealing with this border crisis. This is her first trip to Central America, and she still hasn't been to the southern border. Um, you know, there's a very easy, easy way. If she's getting annoyed at being asked about why don't you go to the southern border, there's a real easy way to solve that. Go to the southern border. It's not that hard. And who who's the commentator we're hearing yeah mark Thiessen from the american enterprise oh Institute. right right, right. Yes. AI. but i felt that this was very much the type of comment we would have and i like the way he framed it like this is just communication incompetence like this is a bad answer and you should have been prepared for it and your team should have prepared you for it because it is as Thiessen says the most obvious question you would be asked because everyone has been talking about how she hasn't been to the southern border so Probably you're going to get that question. Probably you should prepare with a more meaningful answer than, well, I haven't been to Europe and I haven't been to the moon and I haven't, you know what I mean? Like that's that kind of style of dismissiveness is really unhelpful. Yeah. And at least for me, uh, in my social media feed, that's not the part that everyone was really upset about with this trip of Kamala Harris. Everyone was my network was livid about her comments to don't come don't come essentially right so it's kind of choosing a tame part yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> to be critical of but yeah it, it was just a highlight to me because i do like people in their conversations bringing up just sheer communication capabilities and competence or incompetence because so much of what we judge we or i should say the political sphere sees through a political lens of, oh, the Democrat, a Democrat said it or a Republican said it or it's, you know, very partisan or whatever. But it's like, actually, a lot of it can just be boiled down to either competence or incompetence in your communication skills, capabilities and preparation. All right, Naomi, that takes us to our first segment where we're going to be discussing politics. So what in politics stood out to you this week? So my thing about politics that I wanted to look at is the new bipartisan group that is kind of working on infrastructure. So Senator Capito from West Virginia, those kind of negotiations fell apart. And then there's a new bipartisan group that is working on kind of negotiating with the Biden administration. There were a few interviews that came up that kind of talked about the new proposal. It's still... There's a new announcement of a $1.2 trillion deal, but we kind of didn't have any of the specifics yet. And there were a few people that had some interesting comments. First and foremost, Susan Collins was on Face the Nation, and she is on this bipartisan group that's kind of trying to figure out this next iteration of infrastructure. And I thought it was interesting, but still limited John Dickerson's approach to exploring how this bill was going to be paid for. So in this first clip, take a listen to John Dickerson essentially trying to understand how she proposes it be paid for. 
And what about the sticky question of how to pay for all of this? Uh, what, where does it? I've heard there's reports that it might include a gas tax increase. There won't be a, de- a gas tax increase, and we won't be undoing the 2017 uh, tax reform bill. I, let me talk about three of the pay-fors. One is the implementation of an infrastructure financing authority. That's very similar to the state revolving funds that we use for sewer and water projects, and it's a bipartisan proposal that was first put forth by Senators Mark Warner and Roy Blunt. A second would be to repurpose some of the COVID funding that has not been spent. Uh, in the $1.9 trillion package that was enacted in March, there were restrictions on what the funding could be used for. It could be used for water, sewer, and broadband. We would make it more flexible so it could be used for infrastructure projects. And third, there would be a provision for electric vehicles to pay their fair share of using our roads and bridges. Right now, they are literally free riders because they're not paying any gas tax. So those are three of the provisions that we've taken a look at. So I feel like this is a decent answer from a Republican to kind of really know the specifics of what they're willing to explore for potential revenue streams. This is a good first answer. Right. Yeah, it, she has three specific, very specific, ways very detailed. She says what they they don't want to look at the tax, uh, the twenty seventeen bill, but says why they're looking at those three things. Now, the next job or the next step is for the host or the journalist to kind of go through these or explore kind of her justification if it's valid or what she's not saying. And essentially, John Dickerson only looked at the COVID revenue streams, and he didn't really explore anything else. This is his follow-up question. One of the objections to taking back some of the money that was in the COVID relief plan is that some of the states have really benefited. They've done, they've done much better than they thought they would. Uh, their tax receipts are up, but that's not true of all states. And so some states are saying, you can't take away this money that's helping us recover from COVID to then use it for infrastructure. Well, I've talked to governors who are enthusiastic about the prospect. And when you have a state like California, which has an enormous surplus and yet we're giving billions of additional dollars to that state, I think we can find room uh, to repurpose some of this money. In addition, if you look at what has been spent, there literally is hundreds of billions of dollars in the pipeline going back to the initial CARES Act that was passed in March of last year. Uh, We have put an enormous amount of money, and rightfully so, into fighting COVID. Last year, we had five bipartisan bills, and this year, President Biden added another $1.9 trillion that included a lot of funding that was not directly for fighting COVID. So she's essentially saying there's so much COVID money that we haven't spent. Some states are doing okay. There's room to use this money for infrastructure instead, right? Like that that's her answer. Whether you agree with that or not, 
that's not paying like to only choose the covid relief money i thought was like not a great choice by john dickerson i really would have wanted him to see a little bit more about specifically the republicans decision not to touch the 2017 tax reform bill right i would love to hear republicans defend that more deeply I understand they don't want to because that was one of like their big accomplishments of the last four years, but then have them defend the fact that it's blown up our deficit even more or that it hasn't been as successful as it was supposed to be or, you know, like defend the merits and the accomplishments of the 2017 tax reform bill to justify not going back to it or not raising the corporate tax or not taxing the rich, right? Republicans haven't had to defend that stance very aggressively. Well, I think perhaps one of the reasons why Dickerson wouldn't have gone there, A, that question has already, we have seen that question asked to other Republicans. That had been asked of Shelley Moore Capito's group, but now this is a bipartisan group. Right. And its Democrats also have agreed that they're, the ones in this group have agreed that they're going to find other sources of funding. And Collins is now speaking for not just Republicans, but also Democrats. Democrats who probably weren't fans of that tax reform bill but nonetheless have taken it off the table right it just seems like there's there should be some explanation to that right and then there were a couple democrats that i wanted to explore their answers and (laughs) it was just very interesting to me so nancy pelosi speaker nancy pelosi was on city of the union being interviewed by dana bash and she essentially kind of makes the claim that one she needs to know more of the specifics and the biden administration is such a huge player in this but like we shouldn't be paying for the plans of the past we need to kind of plan for the future a group of five democrats five republican senators they have a deal that they say is 1.2 trillion dollars about $600 billion in new spending. Uh, That's more than Republicans were offering, but of course, less than President Biden wanted. I know a lot of the details are still being worked out, uh, but they're also saying no new taxes. So the combination of of no new taxes to pay for it and about $1.2 trillion, is that something in the ballpark that you would agree with? I'm I'm very pleased that they came to their agreement. Of course, uh, the President of the United States is a a major factor in this, and he has said he would not support any taxes on people making under $400,000 a year, and that includes increasing the gas tax, which I think may be part of their arrangement. Well, we haven't seen it, but that was what was uh, thought to be in the plan for a source of funds. Uh, We certainly know that there's money to be had by at least making people pay their taxes. I'm not even talking about those who... uh, abuse the system. I'm just talking about those who illegally do not pay their taxes specifically. And uh, so let's see. I mean, I haven't seen it. You're you're announcing this. Uh, I do think that it is predicated on an infrastructure that is of the last century. We have to be thinking in a more forward way. We must build back better. An interesting strategy here by Nancy Pelosi to punt the reaction to the Biden administration to say, well, let's see what the president thinks about this, essentially. Right, right. Like, I'm not going to, like, be excited for something he's ultimately going to say, no, thank you. But the other part that I thought was really interesting is that she says, 
essentially it's predicated on the infrastructure of the last century and that we need dream bigger it should want more right and i think that is a nod towards and now i haven't heard the rest of the interview but it sounds like she's referring to what was originally in biden's proposals related to healthcare infrastructure the infrastructure of care right you know, lots beyond of conversations the physical infrastructure yes right and then that's what this bipartisan group is focused on is the physical infrastructure right take a listen to another interview this time with representative alexandria ocasio-cortez she also talks to Dana Bash, and I just found it really interesting that they had very similar reactions to this bill and pretty much said, this is too small. We should be bold. So a group of five Republican, five Democratic senators is proposing $1.2 trillion in an infrastructure compromise deal. $600 billion of that is new spending, they say, no tax hikes to pay for it. Uh, would you vote yes or no on that package if it comes before you in the House? You know, I think um, from what we've seen so far, and particularly the lack of climate action as well, I think adding um, to the severe lowering of our scope and scale and what we're seeking to do on ambition, uh, I, I, I doubt it, frankly, in the current uh, state of that proposal. And I think one of the things that's really important to communicate is that this isn't just 1.7 trillion. Um, this is about an overall investment spread out over anywhere between eight to 10 years, uh, which is a very, very low amount of money. It's not going to create the millions of union jobs that we need in this country, particularly to recover from the pandemic. Um, and it's not going to get us closer to meeting our climate goals, which are crucially important at this point in time. As you well know, Democrats have three votes to spare in the House. So if the White House comes to you, if Democratic leaders come to you and say, this is the best you're going to get right now, would you and fellow progressives still say no to this? Well, I think the thing is, is that this isn't the best that we can get. And I do think that we need to talk about the elephant in the room, uh, which is Senate Democrats, which are blocking crucial items in a Democratic agenda. So there's not many times where I feel like Nancy Pelosi and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are pretty much saying the almost the same exact things. Right. And... They have very different kind of values and leadership styles and are often in conflict of the Democratic strategy in the House. And so it'd be curious to see, like, who evolves first, who whose who stance pivots faster. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, they're just on the same page with more ambitious Democratic policies than Senate Democrats, right. it seems. But it's not often that literally on the same day, yeah. on the same show, these women are saying the same thing. Yeah. Brendan, was there something in politics that stood out to you? Yeah, actually, I wanted to talk about, as I mentioned earlier, Biden's trip to Europe, his first foreign trip as president. Biden, who used to be chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for years and years and years and years, and obviously served as vice president, often bragged about knowing so many world leaders still brags yeah always brags yeah and so it's a really it's as biden would say it's a big effing deal so i wanted to talk about that and there's a lot of detail and interesting insights spread across the two shows that i covered however peeking a little bit ahead at what you are 
going to say about journalism, I see that you are probably going to be talking about this as well. And all I see is your your note here, setting expectations. And I'm thinking that probably your journalism segment will be a really nice introduction into the more detailed discussion. Oh, so you want me to go? So, Leah, let's let's have you go in journalism, and then we'll we'll tackle. Well, good job peeking into. All right, well, let's do it. Yeah. So I didn't have too too much to say because I felt like it was it was a weird meeting because literally Biden was like in the G7 meetings when the shows were taking place. He hadn't met with, or he still hasn't met with. Vladimir Putin and who's not a member of the G7 not a member but he's going to be meeting with Biden in Geneva and it just felt like there was a lot of things in flux yep and and so what I wanted to look at for my journalism segment is when a lot of news hasn't been made yet but you have an important interview what are you trying to accomplish and it seemed to me that both John Dickerson and Dana Bash we're trying to set expectations or we're trying to determine what the expectations of the administration were going into this trip. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken was on both State of the Union and Face the Nation. And the two shows that I covered. He was everywhere. He was everywhere. He wasn't on Meet the Press. Nobody was on Meet the Press, though. So it's not like he was slacking. I think that's slacking. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought it was interesting that both Dickerson and Dana Bash try to capture this question of what are you trying to do? How do you know you all have done what you're seeking to do? I thought that Dana Bash's framing of this question was particularly well done. Let's look ahead to President Biden's meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. That's going to be on Wednesday in Geneva. I know the president plans to confront him on human rights, on Ukraine, on recent cyber attacks. How do you define success out of this meeting? Donna, this is not going to be a a, a flip the the light switch moment. Um, What the president is going to to make clear to President Putin is that uh, we seek a more stable, predictable relationship uh, with Russia. Uh, And if so, there are areas where our interests overlap and we may be able to find ways to work together. But if Russia chooses to continue reckless and aggressive actions, we will respond forcefully, as the president's already demonstrated uh, that uh, that he would when it comes to election interference or the solar wind cyber attack or the attempt to murder Mr. Navalny with a chemical weapon. So this is a, a, a beginning of testing the, the proposition, the question of whether Russia is interested in a more stable and predictable relationship and uh, finding areas to, to work together. We're not going to get the answer uh, out of one meeting. Uh, we'll have to see what comes from that meeting. But let me say one other thing that I think is really important. Um, this meeting's not happening uh, in a vacuum. We're coming off the G7. We're coming off a NATO summit. Uh, we'll be coming off of a, an EU summit as well. And our leadership uh, and our engagement uh, is a very powerful force. There was a major poll that was just done that found across these countries, across these democracies, 75% of the people on average have confidence in American leadership. That's up from 17% a year ago. That means we're in a much stronger position uh, to work together with these countries, militarily, diplomatically, politically, economically, including when it comes to dealing with challenges posed by Russia uh, or China. So I thought this was an interesting way to kind of ask this question. She acknowledges kind of the topics that President Biden is planning to raise when he meets with Putin. She essentially 
closes her question by asking, how do you define success out of this meeting? That is so specific and is it's something you can search for two months, six yeah. months, a year from now to understand of whether or not they actually were successful. Well, frankly, it's what should be asked in any business meeting as well before it gets started. <laughs> How do we define success from this meeting? And if we can't define success, then Bye. why are we meeting? Bye. <laughs> of course, Secretary of State Blinken's response is nuanced and, you know, he doesn't want to give a clear answer so that they can't be measured as successful or unsuccessful right. a year from now, right? But I think in a sloppier question, his answer would have looked okay. But because the question was so specific, you're just like, oh, you're just like blabbering. Well, and he literally says, we're not going to get the answer out of one meeting. Yeah, We have it, to see what comes from that meeting. It's like, okay, fine. It's interesting you say that, Brendan, because John Dickerson on Face the Nation explores that very question using some feedback he got from another secretary of state oh my gosh is this a reference to the condi rice interview that went on forever last week yeah he got lots of feedback in that two-hour interview Let's hear it. Let me move on to Russia. I asked one of your predecessors, Condoleezza Rice, former Secretary of State, how to judge the meeting with Putin. She said, ignore the theater review, uh, the, the theater reviews of it, ignore the moment, but look several months down the road to see if the Russians have gotten the messages that have been delivered privately. Mm-hmm. So what should we look for in six months or so that will show that there have been fruits of this actual meeting? Look, I think Secretary Rice is exactly right. This is, uh, this is not a, a light switch uh, moment. This is about the president uh, wanting to do two things, and he's been very clear about it. Uh, To tell uh, President Putin directly that uh, we seek a more predictable, stable relationship. Uh, And if uh, we're able to do that, there are areas where it's in our mutual interest to, to cooperate. But if Russia continues to take reckless and aggressive actions, we'll respond forcefully, as we've already done when it comes to election interference, when it comes to the solar wind cyber uh, attack, when it comes to the uh, attempt to poison and kill uh, Mr. Navalny. And this is a beginning uh, of testing that proposition. And uh, Russia will have to decide by its actions uh, which direction it wants to go in. And I think Secretary Rice is is exactly right that we'll see that play out uh, in the months ahead. Wow. Excellent way to phrase it. But Blinken returned to the exact same exact answer yeah the exact answer on his talking points it's not a light flip this light switch moment yes because that's what we're expecting from Putin. okay well well, literally this it's not a flip the light switch moment which is actually really hard to say (laughs) is is very much like playing down expectations for the meeting Right, exactly. That's exactly what he's doing. So good for Dickerson in asking specifically what to look for in the future, but kind of lame that we didn't get an actual answer. So, Brendan, we want to get to your something in politics. Was this a good segue? Yeah, so going, let's just go straight into a little bit of detail here. Certainly, I will highlight a thing or two that Anthony Blinken said himself, but related to what you just played about the outcome of this and what the U.S. is looking for down the line. Well, in the panel discussion on this week, Martha Raddatz spoke with 
Michelle Flournoy, she is the former Secretary of Defense for Policy for President Obama. And the question that Martha Raddatz asked her was not what we're looking for from this meeting, but what is Putin looking for? That is so Martha-like. And, and Michelle, you have spent your entire life in foreign policy and looking at these countries and seen many summits uh, in your time. What do you think Vladimir Putin wants out of this? I think Vladimir Putin wants to be seen on the world stage as an equal uh, and as a... Um, That's another reason not to have that press conference. It is. I mean, you, we don't really want to give him that platform for propaganda and disinformation and spinning, you know, things his way. But I do think, you know, the president has to go sit down with him face to face. This is not about a reset. This is about a very clear-eyed approach to Putin that says, look, these are our interests. We are resolved to defend them. We, these are our, you know, concerns about your behavior in all these different areas. These are our expectations. And we want to get things on a more stable, predictable footing so that this relationship between two nuclear powers doesn't go completely off the rails. I think you have to do that as a start, and it's really a test for Putin as to whether he will sort of reduce some of his worst behavior going forward. So it sounds like from this answer from Michelle Flournoy, Putin wants exactly what he's getting, which is this elevation in the world's eye. He wants this meeting. That's what Putin wants, and he's already got it right? It's going to happen. But of course, the U.S. wants, obviously, as everyone has been saying, a lot more than just the meeting. The U.S. wants actual results. The U.S. wants to make sure that Putin does not attack or support the attacking of the U.S. in the cyber sphere. Wants to make sure that Putin does not interfere in our elections anymore, wants to make sure that Putin does not invade any countries surrounding him. So the U.S. wants a lot more than Putin does from this meeting. And to make it happen, the U.S. has a few tools at our disposal, including sanctions. But what I really appreciated from Martha Raddatz's interview with Antony Blinken is she got into that, and she got into asking whether these sanctions are any good at all. You know, we've already sanctioned Russia for the solar winds hack last year, but Microsoft says it was the exact same group that was behind a cyber attack on government agencies this year. In 2014, President Obama authorized tough sanctions after Russia moved into Crimea. They're still there. Can you give us an example of when sanctions have changed Vladimir Putin's behavior? Well, there are a few things. One is uh, you never know the dogs that don't bark. Uh, sanctions on Ukraine, uh, for, on Russia for Ukraine, for example, may well have prevented even further Russian aggression in trying to take more of the country over the years. We've worked to sustain those sanctions, and we're making sure that uh, we're uh, showing our commitment to Ukraine's uh, territorial integrity, its sovereignty, uh, its independence. But here's what's also different, Martha. We'll be coming, the president will be coming to this meeting but, with but President Putin think, coming off but of do you, the, but I want to stop you there. Do the NATO you summit, think the meeting with the EU. Work? I think that sanctions are, uh, ever, can be, especially when they're done in coordination with other countries, and this is what's critical. When we do them alone, they tend to be less effective than when we do them in close collaboration with other countries. So good for Martha for really pushing on this issue because sanctions are something we tend to use a lot, and it's really worth asking 
whether they actually have an impact on changing the behavior of leaders of countries rather than just hurting those who live in those countries. And this is a, a really hot topic for places like Iran, where we have had sanctions forever. So I really appreciate Martha Raddatz not just asking what the U.S. is prepared to do, but whether it's a good idea. And that's what the press should be doing, right? Questioning these policies at the root rather than just questioning what they are. You got to get to the why. And that's what she's doing. And she's getting to an existential question about whether these should exist at all. Well, and especially since there's history tied to these policies or these responses to say, like, did they work before? Right. Is this something that we found effective? Is this, you know, still in line with our values? Whatever, whatever. Like, it's not like it's coming out of nowhere and there's zero context to be able to analyze it. Yeah, and Raditz, who has covered foreign affairs for so long, we've heard similar questions like this from her of the Biden administration saying, for example, on Iran, or was it North Korea? (laughs) I can't remember which, but she was like, look, this is a troubled area, and you, the Biden administration, have said you're trying to find a happy medium between the Obama policies and the Trump policies. Well, neither of those worked, so why... I think this is on North Korea. Why should a happy medium between two things that don't work be the right way to go? Fair, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I do want to just highlight, or I guess highlight in a bad way, low light, I guess. Remember those? Yeah. The answer from Blinken here, when she was asked about whether sanctions work, and can you give us an example of it? His answer was... You never know the dogs that don't bark. (laughs) Yeah. We don't know. Maybe Russia was prepared to do something even worse than what they've done. And the sanctions might have prevented that aggression. And it's like, okay, A, this is really, really stupid to say that because he's trying to prove a negative. But B, we have an intelligence community whose job it is to know these things. So don't say you never know the dogs that don't bark. Your job is to know the dogs that don't bark. And maybe you don't want to give up that up because it's top secret intelligence. But you can at least say we know that there was a credible thing that Russia could have been doing, blah, 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 blah. Like you don't have to get into the details, but you can at least acknowledge it if it exists because don't act like all you know is what we know in the papers. Right, that's true. That's a bunch of BS. So I, that, I'm just calling BS on that answer. Oh, and by the way, Raditz goes on to ask the sanctions question to a Republican who's commenting on this topic as well, which is great. Yeah, that's fabulous. So overall, as we saw from the two answers that we played of Antony Blinken on your shows, Naomi, Blinken was very much on message But that doesn't mean that he was actually a good guest, right? Because if you stick so close to your message as a guest, it can sound like you're not even listening to the questions being asked, and it can be very annoying. I wanted to point out one really disappointing moment at the end of the interview on Fox News Sunday. So Chris Wallace had a really interesting show. He had an interesting booking because he had Anthony Blinken on, But he also managed to get Trump's former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. So what an exciting thing to have two Secretaries of State, and you can have two perspectives 
on what is going on and also dig in deeper into what each of the secretaries of states did or planned to do in their time. At the end of the interview with Anthony Blinken, Biden's secretary of state, Chris Wallace asks a very simple question. Finally, uh, your immediate predecessor, Secretary Pompeo, is waiting on the wings. He's going to be coming up in the next segment. Briefly, what would you tell him is the biggest difference between Biden foreign policy and Trump foreign policy? Chris, I'm resolutely uh, looking forward, uh, not backward. Uh, please say hello to Mike. We've had a lot of good conversations, uh, and I uh, look forward to the next one. Uh, but we're focused on uh, on the future moving forward. We've had a very good couple of days with the G7 in actually demonstrating that democracies can come together uh, and uh, deliver for people in, in, in real ways, real outcomes. A billion shots uh, in arms. Uh, that's remarkable. Uh, dealing more effectively with climate change, prohibiting financing of coal-fired plants, which is the biggest single contributor uh, to, uh, to emissions. Uh, this Build Back Better for the World that I talked about. The 15% uh, global corporate minimum yeah. tax that's going to give countries around the world a stronger uh, tax base, stronger markets for us, uh, ultimately. So that's what we're focused on, as well as strengthening NATO uh, and working with the EU and, and, conf and dealing uh, with, uh, with Mr. Putin. So <laughs> please say hi to Mike. That, that is a very diplomatic answer for the Secretary of State. Secretary Blinken, thank you. Thanks for your time in the midst of the president's trip. And please come back, sir. So on first glance, it might appear that Blinken, in his longish answer, rattling off a few different things, was actually answering the question. But no, he wasn't. He was just saying some of the outcomes from the G7 meeting. He wasn't being specific about the biggest difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration when it comes to foreign policy. And it's like, why can't you answer this very simple, basic question? You are literally a different administration, a different political party, extremely different from the outlier presidency of Donald Trump. And you can't name one thing that is a big difference between the two of you? Like, there is a whole audience watching at home in America that is notorious for not paying attention to world affairs. And this is your opportunity to say, here's the big idea. Here's what you can kind of like take away from what we are doing here. If there's one thing that you could say to the American public watching here, so that they remember how your foreign policy is different from the last guy's, and yet he won't say it. He refuses. It's, it's embarrassing. It's your job. Well, and just because you gave a long answer doesn't discount the fact that you ignored the question. Yeah. And Chris Wallace is being very kind by not calling him out on that. Too kind. Too generous. It reminds me, you know, this, oh, I'm looking forward, not looking backwards sort of BS answer reminds me of when there are presidential debates or, or things like that. Oh, and often. they don't want to criticize the previous one of their party? No, no, no. Well, that might be one. But another another one is like, oh, well, I don't answer uh, uh, hypotheticals. Oh, my gosh. It drives me crazy. Well, then maybe you should get another job. Could you imagine going into a job interview and they say, so what would you do if you were faced with this issue? Well, I don't answer hypotheticals. It's like, well, then you're not getting this job because <laughs> I need to know how you're going to do in this job. It's a job interview. So I do have some clips here from Mike Pompeo, but we're running a little long. 
I just want to note that Chris Wallace asked some tough questions about the Trump administration's successes or lack of successes or issues related to Russia. But overall, it was a fascinating series of interviews, conversations on these two shows related to this topic, and it was foreign affairs front and center on both of these programs, but done in what I thought was a pretty good good way. I still think there probably should have been a few more explainers, a few more explanations of kind of the rules of the road of what's going on here, or what had happened in the past, or how, you know, there was a lot of talk, for example, of the fact that after the meeting between Biden and Vladimir Putin, there will not be a joint press conference. And we remember the infamous Helsinki press conference that took place where Donald Trump famously decided to side with Vladimir Putin and not his own intelligence agencies when it came to Russia's role in interfering in the election. That was just a bombshell of an event. And there was lots of talk about how Biden is choosing not to do a joint press conference with Putin, but there was no reminder, really, on either of these shows of what actually happened when Trump did it. Oh, that would have been helpful for people. That was true of my shows as well. They made the comment that, especially on State of the Union, that Biden is not doing a joint press conference, but they didn't mention Helsinki at all. A missed opportunity for meaningful context for why why it's so different and why it's worth talking about. But overall, very interesting. Brendan, I've gone twice already. I think you have something in journalism you want to share? Yes. So this is related to all the Sunday shows, but not related to today's shows. And this is a listener email that we received last week pointing us to an interview that Chris Wallace did on a podcast, Guy Benson's Political Podcast. And this was a a message from listener Carl Gruber, so I do want to thank him, because in this interview, which was very good and very interesting, Chris Wallace comments on a policy that Jake Tapper has on State of the Union where he will not speak with any Republican who voted against certifying Joe Biden's victory. Take a listen to this clip from The Guy Benson Show with Chris Wallace explaining his position. And then we'll have a bit of a discussion on this, which I think is very interesting. But I was asked about uh, this move, Jake Tapper, one of the people who's doing it on CNN, and he said he's not going to have anybody who uh, voted to challenge the the certification in Congress on January, uh, what was it, January 6th, um, uh, of, of, of the vote. Um, he's not going to have him on his show because he says if they lied about that, lied about Trump uh, losing the election, then they'll lie about other things. And my reaction, look, Jake's a smart guy. I have a lot of regard for him. But as I said when I was asked about it was I don't think moral posturing goes with news gathering. You know, my feeling is uh, I can agree or disagree with what a person's particular position is. I, I, I certainly do agree with Jake that you know, the events surrounding January 6th are pretty extreme, but, you know, there are a lot of extreme issues, and I don't think I should be picking and choosing, you know, who I'm going to have on my show if I think somebody is a, is a newsworthy guest who's important for my audience to, to listen to. 
and, and may provide some insight to what's going on. I mean, for instance, to take the most obvious example, Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, voted to challenge the results of the of the November election on January 6th in a couple of states. Um, you're you're going to just unilaterally say that 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 Kevin McCarthy is beneath uh, contempt and you're not going to allow him to be on your show and answer questions. He's the Republican leader. I want to, there are a lot of things I want to ask him. So there's Chris Wallace explaining his position on the topic, but let's hear it straight from Jake Tapper as it was revealed directly in an interview with Kara Swisher on her podcast Sway about a week, week and a half ago. This is something that I wrestle with every day, which is why you're hearing the the uh, struggle mm-hmm. in my in my voice. I like hearing the struggle. Go ahead. Which is, I have not booked since the election anyone who's engaged in in these lies. I just I haven't. It's not a policy, but it's a philosophy where I just don't want to deal with it. I don't want to deal like if you and there are. It really saddens me because there are Republican members of Congress with whom I respect or formerly did, and there's too many important things to deal with right now in terms of what's going on in the Middle East or in Africa or in Myanmar or China or Russia. And also, if you're willing to lie about that, what else are you willing to lie about? And why should my viewers listen to you? Yeah. Yeah. So who do you book? It's it's dwindling. It's it's a dwindling group of people. Well, I mean, there's about a third of the House Republican caucus that I am willing to book. I mean, I could name them to you if you want. And so Kevin McCarthy, no. I would not book Kevin McCarthy. Steve. Now, Steve Scalise, I I wouldn't. I mean, now, if they came to me and said that they wanted to, I don't think any of them, Scalise or McCarthy or Stefanik, have faced a tough interview at all about it. So I might be willing to interview one of them to talk about this to talk about their election lies and what they're doing. But I'm not asking for the interview and they're not eager to do it, no. So it might sound just like a Jake Tapper position. However, last week, Politico Playbook did some digging, the team over there, and did all the legwork to reveal that NBC's Meet the Press has also, in that period, since January 6th, not booked a single Republican on the show who voted against the election results. So meet the press in a very similar position there following Chuck Todd's noted frustration with the state of the Republican Party. Naomi, what do you think of all that? What What is your position on this pretty dramatic choice from some of these hosts? I think it's tricky in general. I... I think Tapper has a point in that when someone's credibility is completely lost, then why do you have them on the show? And if they're willing to lie about the election, what what can you believe them on? But that being said, I don't know. Like, if there are clear leaders in the Republican Party who are making legislative policy choices, it's a real gap to not hear from them directly. So I don't know if it means like being careful about like who you interview and when and frequency. I don't know if there's an easy, clean rule that will guide every instance of concern. Yeah. And I think I think I'd like to explore Tapper's position a little further as well, because he seems to couch it in this idea of, look, if they lie about this, they're going to lie about anything. But 
there are so many instances of lies from people like Trump himself, right? And yet Trump continued to be booked because he was in a position of power. And maybe he's just special. I mean, the social media companies certainly treated him that way while he was president until January 6th. But overall, I I just get this idea of like in my head of if we were in a country that was less free than the United States and we had something like an authoritarian leader or party and we somehow managed to have a free press, is it not the role of the press to interview and push back against and challenge in one-on-one encounters the leadership of that uh, you know that 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 authority it seems like that's a a duty of the press to do right exactly right i would agree at the same time i do think and we've talked about it time and again like these shows need to not be a platform for misinformation right they should not give their microphones to people who will spew lies to an extent that more lies are spread from watching the interview than truth revealed. One way to fix this, as we have advocated again and again, is to have more direct and explicit fact-checking built into these programs so that if lies are told, you don't have to catch it in the moment, but you can catch it immediately afterwards, or you can edit the interview because it's maybe not live. Like there are so many ways where you can put on, put facts on the screen or have a red buzzer. That I mean, there's so many ways to do it, both visually, audibly, in the shape of your program. And yet these shows continue to be run as if they are, I don't know, someone on the radio. You know what I mean? Like they're, right. they're run like they're a live Broadway <laughs> There's like no show. editing possible. Right. And it's like, th- that's not... That's not the world we live in. Like, you need to upgrade and change the way you're thinking if you are concerned about this. And just having a—I feel like having a blanket and saying, oh, two-thirds of the Republican conference I'm not going to have on the show because they lied. I'm trying to think of an analogy, but it's like it's like the easy way out. Right. It's, it's like, such a simple rule. You're, you lose out on all the instances where you could actually have a worthwhile conversation. Right, because you're not willing to do the work that it might take to weed through— the lies or confront the lies yeah and examine it with them yeah but overall i do like that we're not that that the show hosts are recognizing that they should not be platforming lies they should not be providing a forum for lies and assuming that it's just oh well this is just what one side says and now we're going to play the other side and let the other side you know rebut that that's that's not that's not the approach that's not the way that's not the right approach for sure right I just have a question, like, what is the end game here, right? Like, eventually, will nobody be able to be on this show? Yeah, <laughs> like, it seems like there's a real cliff <laughs> of opportunities. Well, and we, I feel like we're reaching that, particularly on Meet the Press, where so many of the Republicans who end up going on the shows are Republicans who are not in power in anymore. Right, or not in office anymore. It's It's kind of crazy, but... Certainly, what I would like to see is not just people cut out, but also a, a way that they can confront how serious this is ex- directly so that the viewers understand what's the going on, The journalists can confront. Yeah, the serious. journalists and the shows need to tell their audience why they're making these decisions. That's important, too. Yeah, I think that makes total sense. Transparency. 
We All right. like it. Well, thank you, Carl Gruber. There's so much more we could say about this. Definitely is going to be a conversation we will continue to have and keep our eye out for what goes on. I feel like we need like now a, a list of all the people who voted for it, and then we can just like have a Google alert whenever they maybe show up on a show and be like, oh, is the dam breaking, or, or let's watch this one. We'll try not to let it pass us by. We will see. We will try. We'll do our best. <laughs> but thanks for bringing it to our attention. It looks like a lot of this story broke while we were away. Yeah, it's always helpful to have those flagged to us. Yep. Well, that's it for Polylog. This week and every week, we encourage you to make your dialogue count. I would, I, I'm just going to repeat Dana Bash's question is, how do you measure success on something you're kind of stuck on right now or something you're working through? What is the measure of success? I love it. So simple. So effective. In a, in a conversation too, right? I mean, absolutely. Because it was related to a conversation, a meeting. Exactly. If you have any measurements of success you want to share with us or any other thoughts, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can tweet at me at Soto Naomi underscore. You can tweet at me at B. and You can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. And if you have an opportunity, please go to the Apple Podcast app or I think it's still in iTunes or no. Wherever, Apple, you, wherever you get your podcast, actually, we would is, love it if you could rate us. It is the podcast app because it's not iTunes anymore. Right. There is a podcast app for the Mac as well. So it's, it's a podcast on both platforms. But please leave a review or rate us. We Horrible. would so appreciate it. It helps people find the show. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.